Well, listeners, uh, with me... Uh, well, and me. And uh, Let's start again. Yeah, come on then, Simon, let's start again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. listeners and welcome to the latest Unions 21 podcast with me Simon Sapper and me Becky Wright and what a week it's been uh, later on in this podcast we're going to be talking to Joe Dromey from the Institute of Public Policy Research about their new publication on the value of trade unions encountering equality aren't we Becky? yes absolutely um, <laughs> and then we're also going to be talking to Paul Day from the Pharmacists Defence Association Union on their what I think is a, a ground well it is groundbreaking test case to de-recognize a uh, staff association absolutely it's, i mean this is it's it's a good news story but it's a fascinating story as well so we've got joe and paul coming up but first as, as ever a quick roundup of the news and two oh, things caught our eye didn't they this yeah, week oh, over the weekend God, i have to say i don't like to get personal about this but charlie mullins the owner of pimlico plumbers oh this is someone a, this you is would a not want family wanna, podcast this is someone you would not want to be stuck in a lift with, really. He's just lost his court case um, in which he was trying to defend the position that all the people he, uh, in quotes, employs are self-employed and therefore don't have any rights. And actually, Ugh. actually, he's lost at every stage of this case that, uh, that has been taken out by one of his former, quote, employees. Um, and still he says he's not going to accept the ruling, he's not going to pay sick pay or whatever and and or, or observe the minimum wage he's going to carry on well i mean where are you going to go charlie i mean <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think it's interesting that both our reactions is just literally to hit our head on on the te- desk for lots of different reasons i mean i think that how do, how do you get to a point where you lose at every single point and you still think, oh, yeah, I'm just going to carry on as normal? I'm right there, we're wrong. But, and even as I was sort of reading but before this case was sort of finished around what the guy was entitled, what had to had to use and, and what was expected of him, I just thought, how on earth could you think that that person was self-employed? You have to have a branded van and you have to wear branded... Uh, equipment like you yeah. know, overalls and things like that you take the jobs that they give you and you have to also pay for the privilege I mean it just it, it, it just goes to show I think what happens when there's no checks in the workplace well that's and that's basically the, the Supreme Court has basically said the same thing so hats off to Gary Smith who's the individual involved who, who, who's had a hell of a journey in terms of in terms of his own health and in terms of pursuing the case and, and his team as well that's and that, the other that thing really that caught our eye as well was that the um, IWGB have won a uh, High Court battle with Deliveroo over employment status and there's going to be a judicial review of the decision that, um, so the, the idea was that they were challenging whether people were self-employed or not the review said as far as I understand it that they um, were self-employed uh, but they had the right to collectively bargain under the human rights, under the European Convention of Human Rights. So even though that they were uh, classed as self-employed, they still had that right to convene themselves. Which is really, which is really significant. And 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 congratulations to the IWGB for getting the, the funding from from a crowdfunding source to to actually run the appeal 
which we'll look forward to uh, you know, in, with, with, with great interest because the notion of self-employed people having the right to collectively bargain is something that is it's not that well established i mean like the, the whole i mean the whole the whole point of, of this will be to at least to introduce some clarity into the in, into the law in this area well i think there's a couple of things isn't it that is that we've all been talking about what makes somebody employed a worker or self-employed and how in this kind of new working environment that we're sort of finding ourselves in some of these lines are getting blurred and being taken advantage of and so it's not always kind of clear and there's not always clarity in the legislation over that Um, and then there's also that whole idea of just because you are self-employed doesn't mean to say that you don't have any kind of rights to set some standards and to have a voice in your workplace and I think you know we already have um, precedent for that in the UK when you see unions like equity and the MU and to a lesser extent the N. NUJ and the Writers Guild, you know, who kind of do work to set standards from across the industry and and yeah, artist union of and the artist well. union of England yeah. as well, yeah. So I think you know we there is that sort of precedent anyway. I mean, really interesting. You know, our conference, Karen O'Loughlin talked about the SIP two in over in Ireland. Their um, their challenge to to the European legislation around cartels and the whole idea that kind of if you're self employed. Uh, being part of a union and exerting yourself as part of a union was kind of seen as uh, anti-competition. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see how that, whether that also shines a light on that, because so far I think we've been keeping a bit under the radar. On we, 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 we have, and I, and, and I mean, Deliveroo have kind of hit back at the news by saying, well, you know, actually the, the review broadly agreed with us. There are very narrow grounds for appeal. And we said, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? But, but I mean, I think, what, what in your view, Becky, are the areas where Actually, the law needs clarification, needs tightening up. I think it needs tightening up. Uh, sort of, I'm going back. I don't think we need a, a, a new title, as kind of Matthew suggested in his review. But I do think it, there needs to be some form of clarity over, or, or ease. So, I suppose in a naive kind of way, I sort of think everybody should be an employee unless proven otherwise. Well, I agree. That should be the, well, <laughs> I just should don't be the understand why position. we make it so complicated. Why don't we just employ people and then there's an onus to opt out as opposed to opt in? I think that actually would create a, a much easier way of kind of doing that. But I also think, and this is going to be touched on in the conversations that we have with Paul and Joe later on in the podcast, that... There needs to be one an, an understanding and an acceptance in the public policy world of the importance of unions and the role that public policy plays in kind of honing some of these arguments and sorting some of these things out. And Simon McVicker from the Association of Indefe- Independent Professionals, who has, uh, uh, I think they've worked a bit with community on some things, it said, it's unacceptable that policymakers are relying on costly, time-consuming court cases as the first port of call in determining employment status. Ipsy has long asserted that there is a fundamental lack of clarity about what does and doesn't constitute self-employment. This confusion hurts both the self-employed and those looking to engage them. And I think that that, there is that, and I I sort of talked about it when we, we spoke with Joe, which is that in the UK I feel like we treat things as piecemeal. So we tinker a little bit here, we tinker a little bit there, we don't see things in the kind of the broader... 
knitted aspect to it all. So we have industrial strategy, but we don't really talk about unions as kind of part of that. We blame unions for not for having low collective bargaining and for having low membership, and yet actually we don't address the kind of public policy and the legislative constraints that we have. And 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 unions get lots of po- positive press whenever we go to court. Yeah, because it does show that we do know what we're talking about. Do we not? Well, Simon, do we? We? I mean, we obviously. Of course, we know what we're talking about. It's. Um, I mean, what about for you? What are the two things do you think, kind of, come out of the these two judgments for you? Well, there are two things. As you say, Becky, there are two things for me. I think the first, the, the, the first is once again we've had to go to court where, where collective bargaining, collective organisation has failed, and and it's it's not failed through any fault of the unions or through the dominant fault of, uh, of union. It's failed because. The, the environment in which we're, we're operating is, is hostile. I mean, yeah. hostile environments usually used in a kind of civil liberties phrase, and I don't mean to demean the very real problems and issues associated with that. But this is a hostile environment for workers and, and, for, and, and for trade unions, and that has to change. Yeah. That has to change. That has to change. So it's point one is the product of a hostile environment has to change. Point, point, point two, why does it have to change? Not because it's nice, not because we all suddenly want to be cuddly and, and, and have love-ins as opposed to negotiations, but because the way things work at the moment is economically illiterate. It's dysfunctional. It's, yeah. We are in a, a stubbornly low productivity economy with no signs that that's really going to change. How do you change? You value, you recognise and value the stakeholders in that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think, I mean, you know, I talk about a, uh, a link between our little opening section and the people that we're going to talk to this this week. But I, I think the conversations we're having with both Joe and Paul really kind of uh, thought-provoking help to kind of make us think a little bit more about how we kind of go through that hostile environment. Well, listeners, Becky and I are now with Joe Dromey, Senior Research Fellow uh, at the Institute for Public Policy research. I always get titles wrong. And 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 Joe, uh, we'll have to have words outside because the shirt you're wearing is so loud it could be out of my wardrobe, <laughs> and that's just not allowed. On you the can same probably podcast. hear it on the podcast. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, me who has no stereoscopic vision is kind of like <laughs> just trying to focus on Joe's face, and that's painful <laughs> enough as it is. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> but I am literally like, oh. <laughs> Well, we're, we're very. Let's pleased, get serious. We're so. very pleased to have the chance serious. to talk to Joe about about the IPO, IPPR's latest publication, "Power to the People," uh, about, about which essentially says trade union density and trade union membership is really good in terms of in terms of its impact on, on equality. And I, I first read this and I thought, well, it's good to see something from the IPPR as always. But like, tell me something I don't know. However, but in fact. Any discussions about this, I said to Simon, yeah, for us, these are the sort of things that we take for granted, saying that unions are a good thing, and then we forget that the rest of the world doesn't either know or doesn't really appreciate that it's a really good thing. So the very the fact that the, the publication sets that off is, is really, really important. And also, it comes as part of a wider commission, doesn't it, Joe, on economic justice. So we were kind of wondering if you could give us a bit of background about the commission and where the trade union aspect fits into that and why it was important for you guys to have that trade union aspect within the commission. Sure. So the the Commission on Economic Justice is a kind of big two-year programme which we're doing here at IPPR, which is looking at, as you would expect, how we create (laughs) a more just economy in which we um, have more strong, sustainable and, and shared growth. So it's kind of you know reassessing our economic model, which has been shown in recent years to be failing um, too many people, too many regions. Um, 
And so a big part of that is looking at how we generate wealth. So it's about looking at how we end the decade-long stall in productivity that we've seen. But obviously the other side to it, the other side to kind of living standards is not just how much wealth we're generating, but how that wealth uh, is shared uh, among working people. And that's why we think uh, trade unions are, are so important, because what we've seen in recent years is not just a decline in the labour share, the amount of wealth that's going to working people, but also an increasing uh, inequality in terms of how that's distributed. There's things which the state can do um, to, to address that in terms of you know, minimum wage uh, policies and, and, and other kind of labour market regulation. But the, through time, the thing which has been proven to best um, distribute wealth more equally among working people uh, are strong unions. And that's why we're, we're concerned about what we've seen in recent years with uh, the decline in union membership and collective bargaining. And you're right that it's, you know, it's, it's something which is well known, that strong unions help promote equality. But what we're doing in this report is saying that the state shouldn't be agnostic about the decline of mm. the union movement, the decline of collective bargaining. And if the state wants to reduce the soaring levels of inequality that we've seen in the last four decades, then strong trade unions are a vital partner in supporting that. And, and I think, in, in certainly in the news coverage about the report, uh, reference has been made to the speech Theresa May made on the day she became mm. Prime Minister about work, essentially, you may have heard this before, but working for the many, not the few. You know, yeah. She's on the side of the, the ordinary person. But of course, it's turned out to be absolutely hollow mm. uh, in, in terms of a, a commitment because... And, and this is the, the, the challenge, I suppose, is, is you could be forgiven for believing that the government doesn't want to pursue uh, an agenda that leads to greater equality. It's quite happy with massively, massive inequities in society and wealth and in, in, in education and in life chances. Yes, uh, I, think, I think there's certainly <laughs> something in that. I mean, she talked about the... Uh, I mean, I thought in terms of the issues that it highlighted, I thought it was you know, it, the, the burning injustices. It was a very powerful speech. It's just a shame that a lot of the what we've yeah, seen yeah. since hasn't li lived up to that. And I think, I mean, to give them credit, the government has, or well, actually the, the, the previous government, that has done some things to address extreme inequality in some areas. So the, the national living wage, for example, which isn't a real living wage, doesn't cover all employees, let alone all workers but it has led to a significant reduction in extreme low pay but what we've seen is since about 2014 it, inequality has kind of flattened out and it's at levels higher than we have seen since like the 19 kind of 20s 1930s yeah. we're much more unequal than 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 most countries and as we showed in the report there is a relationship between um, strong unions and equality um, at the firm level uh, through time in the UK and internationally. So if we want to tackle the burning injustice of inequality, then strong trade unions is uh, a kind of key tool to support that. I suppose it kind of makes me think that in order to get to that conclusion, you've, you've got to want to address the issue of inequality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've got to actually see the... the um, see the world and see that vast gap or feel that vast gap and say actually do you know what this isn't kind of right and I and it kind of is when I read the report and when we've been talking about it before and you sort of see what's going on it, it feels like we talk an awful lot about people being in their own little sort of silos their own little kind of echo chambers and I and I just feel like increasingly yeah we are but we, it's not just about who we follow on Twitter it's also about kind of 
um, the types of jobs we do and you know if we think the economy is going to be a bit more like an hourglass that is going to be a, a kind of a massive uh, gulf potentially that doesn't lead to a cohesive society it doesn't lead to a cohesive kind of nation and it does seem that public policy has uh, you know for what I sort of follow of it is not really addressing that kind of long-term cohesiveness through inequality yeah and and also it's not really um it's not really putting forward a vision for what we want to be never mind brexit yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. taking brexit off the table we're not really sort of saying look work is going to change lives are going to change what do we see as a good place to live and work yeah and what what will lead to a dynamic hyper you know high productive economy to yeah. break this cycle of, of low investment low productivity and and i think there's been there's been an interesting kind of and and gradual change in how we kind of see inequality i think because i mean it's it, it sort of if you look back to um the, you know the previous labor government and that line about we don't mind people getting kind of filthy rich just as long as they pay their taxes Unfortunately, the latter often didn't. <laughs> the former certainly happened. The latter often didn't happen. But I think that sort of belied a, a kind of a, a view that as long as we were increasing sort of living standards uh, for kind of you know low and mid learners, then soaring inequality didn't really matter. And there was this argument about equality of opportunity rather than equality of, of outcome, and that the kind of the former mattered, the, the latter less so. And I think that's that started to change. The, I think the the spirit level was one of the things that kicked mm, that yeah. into changing, changing that showed that what mattered for lots and lots of outcomes was not necessarily the wealth of a country, but the levels of inequality. So slightly poorer but more equal countries fared better across a, a vast array of social outcomes than richer but much more unequal countries like like the UK. And then that we saw more of that with with Piketty showing the sort of massive. And growing inequalities of, of wealth, uh, and I think what's really shaken uh, kind of politicians is, is is things like Brexit and Trump, and how you can uh, you can't separate those things from inequality and people's feeling that the kind of the, the economic system isn't working for them, yeah. and so uh, that pr- link that we've seen in, in you know previous decades of growing national wealth leading to growing income for kind of middle and low income earners has, has kind of broken down even before the, the crash um, and, and I think restoring it that is one of the key aims of the, the commission and the other thing I think the key thing that you sort of said right from the off Joe that I think is worth repeating and sort of putting in people's mind is the role of the state the role of public policy in actually kind of um, helping unions or kind of creating the environment and recognising unions because I think an awful lot of the kind of uh, media work around unions or an awful lot of the kind of the conversation around unions is simply how it's our fault continually yeah. that we're in the situation we're in. And I'm the first to say, you know, you have to take responsibility, but you also have to recognise the structure and the system that we're in. And I think it is fair to say that the, sh- the system and the structure that we're in does not recognise the value of unions. You know, the, the legislation doesn't recognise the value of unions. Kind of engagement doesn't necessarily recognise the value of unions. Well, it's not just unions, it's collective endeavour. Well, the co- yeah, yeah, the, co- well, the it, independent it, collective voice. It, it, it's, it's sort of anti-union, anti-union either by default or design. Yeah. Rhetoric and, and politics are riding on the coattails of atomisation of society, mm. where yeah. the, individ- the individual has a relationship with their 
their internet service provider and almost kind of nothing else in, independently of that. Uh, but given that's the environment we're in, we're in Joe. I mean, you're, the, the pamphlet sets out a number of, of ways in which this could be remedied: um, managed for collective bargaining in low product productivity sectors, um, unions to be ensured rights of access to workplaces to recruit, and a right to join with employers, with employers required to inform workers of the fact mm-hmm. there's a union and they have a right, right, right to join it. But and, and a number of others as well. Is there one amongst amongst the things that you've covered that particularly appeals to you? And and, and how do we move from it being an idea into a practical reality? I think the one which is, you know, very easy to implement and could potentially have, have a kind of transformational impact on reducing the number of people in low pay and, and poor uh, em- employment in, in the UK is uh, sectoral collective bargaining in, in low pay sectors. Mm. and. The, the, the reason I sort of came to this was, was actually through an, another bit of work that we're doing on the NHS and social care and we, uh, we were looking at the sort of workforce aspects uh, and the you know, social care workforce is, is you know, the, probably the most exploited, yeah. the most undervalued, um, yeah, the mo- one of the most important yeah. um, in, in the UK and the, the, the stats are absolutely shocking, you know, about a third of care workers, I believe, are on zero hours contracts. Um, uh, I think around a half are below the, the the living wage. There's absolutely endemic kind of exploitation of, of the workforce. And obviously, one of the solutions to that is paying more. And and the, a big root cause of this is the underfunding of the social care system. But there's some uh, research that shows that for every pound that you pay care providers. Uh, 14 to 18 pence of it, every additional pound, 14 to 18 pence gets through to the workforce. So the, the root cause is not just the underfunding, but the atomization and the kind of weakness of, of, of the workforce. Yeah. Um, and that in that sector, you will only address uh, low pay and em- endemic exploitation um, if, you have, uh, if you strengthen the bargaining power of the workforce. Um, and you could, you, know, you could stand on the outside and say, go and organise the care workforce, right? And you could just say, more needs to be done. And obviously Unison are, are, are kind of plugging away at that and are, are making some progress. But there's, like with many sectors, there's, there's kind of natural challenges to organising the workforce. So this is one of the areas, I think, yeah. where sector or collective bargaining could make uh, a real difference. And it's basically just having the representatives of the workforce sitting down with uh, representatives of the employers and with, with government and saying, you know, what do we need to do to make sure that care workers are, are treated fairly? What's a kind of reasonable uh, minimum set of uh, kind of employment terms and conditions, you know, based potentially, as we recommended on the ethical care charter from, from Unison, and making that the floor uh, upon which employers kind of compete. Because what we've seen in, in care is, uh, you know, related to the privatisation of, of the, the sector and the underfunding, is labour becomes only a cost to be minimised and yeah. in that situation with a kind of uh, a workforce which doesn't have strong bargaining power, you get appalling um, practices. And so that's, that's, I think, the thing which could happen relatively quickly and which would really make a difference and end the burning injustice of the exploitation of the workforce. Well, the other thing I was going to say is it, it could happen very quickly as well because there are already those sort of mechanisms in the health sector. Mm. <laughs> and on Brexit, both the health and social care sector unions and employer organisations have come together as part of the Cavendish Coalition. So there's already like, there's there's already a kind of a climate about that. And it's really interesting to me that it still still hasn't happened. And I think it goes to 
such a good example of how public policy can make a big difference if you know it makes such a big difference just making those kind of small changes which were already built on existing yeah. or potentially or potential kind of exactly. structures and I also think there is a as you, we're getting an aging population there is much more of a conversation now around elderly elder care and what that looks like and how actually we could all turn around and say oh as we get a bit older we want to be cared for but th- there is a kind of a, a wider argument kind of almost a selfish argument that could be made to people about this couldn't it which is that one day you will get old and you yeah. will have or your parents will get old or your grandparents are old and they will need to be cared for and do you not want people who are properly trained and who are yeah. respected and who can can concentrate on the job at hand as opposed to just you know who are trying to make ends meet and trying to dash from here there and everywhere I'm afraid I'm, I'm less optimistic than you two um, that's my job uh, <laughs> to make me feel less optimistic <laughs> <laughs> because I mean I, I, I agree the care sector is absolutely the one to, to look at uh, because there is going to be rising employment in that sector we know that and we also I agree absolutely with your analysis Joe that, that actually there are some really you know, let's, let's put it like this there's lots of room for improvement lots of room for mm-hmm. improvement but there are that's three, positive. But, 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 there, <laughs> but, but there are there are th- there are three there are three challenges I think we need to meet to, to move from from a concept to, to, to reality. The first is very low rates of unionisation, despite the heroic efforts of United Unison and, 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 and GMB and, and, and other, other, others as well. Secondly, the employers. You're right about the Cavendish uh, co- coalition, and that's a great thing. I mean, that's 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 done some tremendously good work. But social care, organisation of social care providers is not as advanced as that and is not wholly embraced by the Cavendish Coalition. And in fact, part part of the row about about Theresa May's magic £384 million a week for the NHS announcement that's come out just just in the last few days before we've been recording this is, does it include social care? And the answer is, well, we're not kind of really sure. Mm. We haven't worked out the detail yet, we just have worked out how much money... We looks need to, good. It looks good on the side of a bus or anywhere else. So, so you've got you've got you've got challenges in union organisation, challenges in employment organisation, and public policy is. I think public policy is is the area that's most vulnerable to change here because the whole way that social care is funded is absolutely unsustainable. Yeah. It, you know, and, and, and it, you know, you can you break things down into fifteen minute chunks here and there, and you only get paid for for certain things, and there's no on costs that, that are allowed. And but I think I think that is. Actually, I'm talking myself into a more optimistic position here because I think that is so unsustainable. It's already the cracks are already that's showing. That's my point. Fall over. But that's yeah. my point. So, that's a, I'm, <laughs> sorry. So you agree with jo, me? Joe's coming in. <laughs> Joe's coming in while I'm sort of having this kind of uh, thing with someone. No, but that's my point. Is that like if anything, I feel like we're coming to a crunch time with an awful yeah. lot of different issues and care absolutely and and our aging population certainly is is one of them. Yeah. And I think it does give us a and in, but the role of public policy is, is vital and key to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, you're right. And, you're right. And I think we should look at the the role of public policy here in, uh, you know, the potential role of public policy in enabling unions to, to organise and and recruit yeah. in that sector. Because so we 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 set out kind of three kind of broad areas of solutions. The, the first is about. Um, you know, promoting collective bargaining and, and you know sectoral collective bargaining in low pay, low productivity sectors is is one of the the measures there. But the second is obviously supporting unions to recruit, to organise, and to innovate. Um, and so there we've got a number of measures, including the the, the right of access, which is kind of based yeah. on the New Zealand uh, model, where 
um, you know, unions still have to request access to a workplace, but it can't be uh, denied apart yeah. from through sort of, you know, apart from through exceptional uh, circumstances, as well as uh, we've mentioned the, the right to, to join. So uh, the Taylor Review had this uh, recommendation for a kind of rights, uh, statement of rights from day mm. one. Uh, and we think that that should be for, for all workers, including the right to join a trade union and saying, this is what a trade union is. This is the trade unions you can join. This is how you can join and allowing people to um, to, to join on on day one. Um, and I think, but I think in sectors like social care, I mean, we're, we're not going to solve, we're not going to be able to provide the care that we need unless we solve the workforce crisis. We're not going to solve the workforce crisis unless we tackle the, you know, appalling low play and exploitation of the, the workforce. You could, you could do that through a kind of regulatory uh, approach, but that I think kind of cuts out the, the workforce. So I think even though we do have a pretty low union membership in the sector, um, I think it's better to set terms and conditions with the involvement and the voice of the, the workforce alongside employers. And obviously you say, I mean, the employers aren't hugely organised in the sector, and that would be a challenge for sec, you know sectoral bargaining uh, across, across the piece, because um, you need not just strong trade unions, but also strong employer organisations. And that's something that's kind of withered in the UK in recent years. Yeah. So, well, that, I mean, it, it's, it's the start of a fantastic discussion, a fantastic and fantastic discussion. And I think, I think the, the, the consensus between the three of us, I guess, is, is, is actually there is an opportunity, you know, there really is an opportunity now to influence public policy that maybe wasn't apparent five, ten years, ten years ago. Uh, and we need to make sure we push in the right way with the right strength at the right, the right pressure point. So, I guess, Joe, your your report, uh, your report, perhaps people can be obtained where if uh, listeners want to read the thing in full. So if you go to our website, ippr.org, um, it's available on there. Gosh, downloadable for free. Indeed, it yeah. Is, yeah. Free. yeah. <laughs> so no excuses to get not get your copy. <laughs> okay. uh, so Joe, thanks ever so much for joining us, and, and you must give me the name of your tailor. <laughs> So as well as talking to Joe this week, we also sat down uh, with Paul Day to talk about the landmark ruling and the work that was involved by the Pharmacist Defence Association Union in de-recognising an employer staff forum organisation, association, however you want to put it, and get look on the steps to gaining union recognition because i think it comes back to that the all the things that we talk about before we have to recognize that as a movement we are responsible for some of the things that we do and we can innovate and we should take as much advantage of the world around as we can but it's kind of almost uh, contra to the fact that we do need public policy to change around us so i think that the pdau stuff is a great example of a union kind of pushing boundaries and testing things themselves. I agree entirely. So, so here he <laughs> so is. So enjoy. Enjoy. Becky, question yes. for you. What goes from naught to 27,000 in less than 10 years? Oh, wow. That's a really interesting question, Simon. i tell you who I think should answer that one. Paul. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, we do have the man who can answer that question. It's Paul Day, the National Officer of the Pharmacist Defence Association Union, the PDAU. Not members to 27,000 members in less than 10 years. That's a, that's a success. It is. We're now one of the 30 biggest unions in the country. Uh, the only exclusive uh, union for, the only union exclusively for pharmacists in the UK, yeah. So why, why don't we know more about this? Partly probably because we're not a TUC affiliate. We're not uh, 
profiled very highly in the trade union movement, but we are highly profiled in um, the world of pharmacy. Basically, a generation or two ago, if you were a pharmacist, you probably owned your own pharmacy. So the whole infrastructure of organisations around pharmacy was about representing pharmacy owners. There wasn't really someone speaking for the individual pharmacist. Um, There was a case, and of course pharmacists, if, if errors happen... Worst case scenario, patients can be harmed, even even killed. Doesn't happen very often, but occasionally can. There was a particularly high profile case where um, a, a child died, and the individuals um, were then up up uh, held responsible for that. And it was clear their employer didn't really take responsibility for that. The individuals right. did. So a number of people set up the Pharmacist Defence Association as an organisation to look after individuals. Um, so you know we help people with their regulatory issues with their uh, any other issues relating to work but of course on the employment side we weren't a trade union Mm. so we set up a sister organization as the pharmacist defense association union and that has grown as you say to 27,000 pharmacists around the UK now but the structure of the industry if I can call it that has changed dramatically hasn't it over those 10 years in, in the sense that now most pharmacists I guess probably work for large organisations, I mean, I'm thinking that you know, you know, you've got Boots Mega Stores, you've got pharmacists and Tesco's and Sainsbury's and all the rest of it, and that was create. I mean, I know it creates tensions, and that's the basis for the campaign that you're you, you've been running. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you know, the, the biggest employer of our members is the NHS because you know, hospital pharmacists, pharmacies and GP practice and CCGs, that sort of thing. But, CCGs for those sorry, of us not in the know. Clinical commissioning <laughs> groups. <laughs> <laughs> the current, the current uh, commissioners of, of health service for you as a as a local person as a resident okay. to whom your hospital visits your GP visits are cross charged. So they are the people funding all your healthcare you get on the it's NHS. It's a of course, this is the NHS. So by the time this podcast goes out, who so knows what the acronym will be? It will have changed, and as it continually does. Um, so yeah, but but. Most of our members actually work either on a locum basis or on an employed basis in the community pharmacy world. Mm-hmm. So the shop on your high street, iconically Boots, who are the biggest and employ the most pharmacists. They've got 7,000-odd pharmacists in the front line dispensing uh, your, your medicines when you need them. See, I think this is really interesting because it essentially tells a story of a changing environment and the necessary changes that an organisation or a group of people need to make in order to respond and to reflect that particular change environment. I mean, it's classic strategic choice, really, isn't it? So. Well, well, it, well, it is. You have yeah. to go to where people are rather than where you want them to be. And the fact that there are 27,000 members and there's been this growth shows that, that the PDAU has accurately assessed what its members need and has moved with its members. Absolutely. And as organize as the kind of the industry goes from being in small business employer led to conglomerates global ownership all that kind of stuff there is a bit more of a need to reflect the employment dynamics that's right well in all industries you know someone's got to be standing up for the little guy haven't they someone's got to be standing up for the individual and that's Mm. genuinely where we are i mean in there's there's two regulators but the main regulator for britain is um is now the General Pharmaceutical Council, but it used to be the, the professional body. It used to be uh, the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Oh, right. So they were the regulator, so everybody was a member. Yeah. Um, they stopped being the regulator. The regulator, I say, became GPHC. And so 
many people would say they haven't quite adapted to not being the regulator mm. and certainly our membership has, has increased and we get, I have to say, lots of positive feedback from pharmacists about we are the voice of individual pharmacists yeah, yeah. more than any other organisation. Well, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned uh, organisations that employ pharmacists outside the NHS such as Boots, yeah. I think you said 7,000 pharmacists for yeah. weeks. and Boots occupy a particular place on the radar of PDAU. Don't they? <laughs> yes. He said, uh, he asked knowingly. Yeah. I, I, and also, I just have to say, before we started this, I've said to both Simon and Paul, I'm so looking forward to this discussion because I've reached peak geek when it comes to this case. So, Paul, tell us about Boots. So, we've just taken the first ever ballot to de-recognise a non-independent trade union. Um, and how that, listeners, uh, turned out, I'll tell you in a second. How that started was the PDA union applied for statutory recognition or wrote to the company, said, can we have recognition? The strategy of the union being, well, let's start with the biggest employer yeah. because de facto, as with any industry, the biggest employer, particularly when it's of that scale, kind of sets the standards for employment across the whole of the sector. So yeah. let's start and have a good working relationship with the biggest employer. Others will follow suit and there we go. The, the company weren't really interested um, asked for a bit of an extension to the process because we were going through the Central Arbitration Committee and during that extension secretly met with the non-independent Boots Pharmacist Association, the BPA, an organisation that's existed, was set up by Boots managers 40 odd years ago um, and has existed within Boots as some kind of mechanism. They're on the list of trade unions, they're on yeah. the certification officers list, but um, they signed an agreement but as a trade unionist going into the PDA union, when my colleagues told me about this, I could not believe this. But they'd signed an agreement that explicitly said, we will not negotiate pay in terms and conditions of employment. When the, is a the, union the, the, not a union? Hang on, so the BPA had said, we're not, so the, the Boots Pharmacists Association said, thank you for recognising us. And because of that recognition, essentially, we're not going to negotiate. Well, the recognition was on that basis. They'd worked with a company for sort of 38 years, but because we were close to getting the statutory recognition ballot about yeah. to happen, the company sat down with them, as I say, in secret, didn't ask pharmacists, didn't ask their members, and signed an agreement and said, we won't negotiate paying conditions. What we will negotiate is how often we meet with a company and what support the company might give us, what facilities we might have with the company and that's it. Well isn't that very close to the flaw that's established by the information consultation with employees regs anyway? Yeah I, I mean um, I just like, like, my response to that was arf like uh, what? <laughs> but, but not speaking to the not speaking to the pharmacist, pharmacist I mean, it's like a, that's a no-brainer isn't it? Yeah well, so on that basis that was enough in law to block the PDA union's progression. So we went through a number of court cases there were some challenges Boots challenged the CAC because um the CAC, uh, the, the CAC, commented clearly on what Boots' behaviour was like and how they'd been disingenuous. Um, you know, and any kind of anyone who understands employment mm. law would mm. say, "Well, how can that be enough to keep out an independent union?" But it was, and that's the that's the law. Ultimately, though, last spring, we got uh, the outcome of of a court case that said, "Well, listen, we'd said this is an infringement of people's human rights and their rights to collectively uh, bargain." And the court said it would be, except that under the law that's existed for 17 years and never been tested, 
individual employees can take on their employer in such circumstances and say we are unhappy with the recognition of this non-independent body and we want that stopped. So we kind of thought, okay, we know the strength of feeling of pharmacists at Boots. So we spoke to a few people and sure enough in the July, six pharmacists, um, so this would be a case in, in history, Parker et al, lodged an application the Central Arbitration Committee to say, we want this arrangement between the BPA and, and Boots to be stopped. Um, and from there we've followed that case. And so the application goes through. It's interesting being, and it's not something I'd really recommend anybody, you know, being the first to test any law. You always want to be the yeah. second, don't you? But, you know, but we were where yeah, we well, were. You want to strengthen the test, not create some, the some, test. Some seek glory, others have it thrust upon them. Yes, <laughs> So we took the chance. And, and, and actually, when I say on, we... That is the trade union movement, <laughs> yeah, though, yeah, yeah. I literally, oh, we're going to have to do this. Yeah, but we took the chance. Well, I say we took the chance, of course, but six individuals. And yeah, we had to yeah, save these six individuals. Yeah effectively I mean I, I mean I think when you look at this law I think it's quite right that there's ability I think the threshold's too high but I think it's quite this ability but it's a bit like you saying to your employer I don't like employer you're buying products over here mm. from this supplier we as the employees don't like it we're going to stop you so I think from the employer's point of view particularly if you you're not necessarily engaged in employee relations very much or don't really value the, the view of your staff you're like who are you to tell us what to do we're running this organization so I can see, and we had to sit down with our, with the applicants and say, we don't know how the company's going to react to this. You yeah. as individuals are, are taking legal action against your employer yeah. whilst in situ. Um, of course, there's protections in the law once the application but goes still, in. But still, it's, it's a big leap to ask people oh, it's to do it. momentous to do it. I don't know if a family, you know, to be frank, if a, if a family friend to me said, oh, my union said to me, we need individuals to do it. Will you step forward? I'd be saying to them, well, you know, how's your relationship with your boss? Of course, kind of your career path, you know, where you're up to. But of course, you know, they're brave people, fantastic people. And the six of them applied. We then go through the reverse process. And the law is actually says, this is how you do a recognition of a trade union. But the section on the de-recognition says it works the same so what, like 40% yeah. threshold? 40% threshold, but it's even things like who are the parties to the de-recognition? Because the recognition law says the, the union has the right to talk to the workforce. Well, in the de-recognition process, who is the union? Well, the union is the union being de-recognised. Yeah. So the applicants were party to the process, but it was a question mark over whether or not we would have the rights to speak to the workforce well, you, even. You so it's harder of, than recognition. So you can kind of understand that the people who are in situ, the, the, the boots, yeah. people could, could say could say to their members, you know, don't don't de-recognise us, we're good people, we're yeah. giving you a good job. It, and how, how, how did the PDAU overcome that hurdle of actually accessing the people who are going to be voted on? Well, uh, I mean, what we said to the people was the facts, and, and they spoke for themselves, and of course the reason we were doing it was because we knew the strength of feeling of our members. Mm. Um, but we just pointed out there was... One item that the BPA put out, they said, you know, you've had a pay rise, you've, we've, you've had this, we've secured this, we've secured the other, or words to that effect, where we did issue a, a clarifying document that said, well, no, their agreement says explicitly they have signed an agreement saying they won't negotiate these things. So they haven't delivered these things for you because by their decision to sign that agreement, they can't. Um, so, um, yeah, we just pointed people out to, to where we're at and people already had the feeling we, I mean we don't think 
we don't think we created a, a, a sense of feeling. We just facilitated people expressing yeah. that opinion. Yeah, yeah, that's um, important. You know, and it's not, you know, I'm sure the company or, you know, others might try and typecast us as kind of stirring up the workforce. Not the case at all. So when we went through the process, and again, the bargaining unit was an interesting question. So who are the bargaining unit? You go to... He said the bargaining unit should be easy to define because it should be in the agreement between the company and the union. Yeah. No scope. There's no definition. What? So hang on. So that's all right. So let's get this straight. There's a couple of things in my head. So there. So the the BPAU didn't actually have like a scope for a bargaining unit. No. There. So you've got an agreement. You've got a written agreement that's in, been in practice for six, seven years, yet the scope of who it represents is not documented anywhere. Okay. So that makes an interesting kind of the employer could then say, well, actually, it included pretty much, you know, Uncle Tom Cobley and all. And they did. <laughs> and so did the BPA. Because that's what you would. I mean, that's the challenge, isn't it, with bargaining unit? But again, I mean, that makes, it shows just how hard this is because you, in the definition, uh, when you go for recognition, you're arguing over the bargaining unit, but in here almost it is set by virtue of precedent. Well, we, well, yeah. We, or did you get managed to roll that we, back? We got, uh, we went to the Central Arbitration Committee with evidence of, you know, minutes and communications from the BPA, statements from their, from their agreements, etc. And just the practical sense that, you know, the senior directors who were also pharmacists were not also being represented by the trade union. That's just nonsense. Mm. I mean, it's quite right, senior people, look at the FDAM people, it's great senior people have got a trade union, but not in a mechanism like that. I mean, it's clearly sort of, you know, coalface or you know, working level, whatever you want to call it, people. So we won that court case with the um, Central Arbitration Committee and got the definition of, you know, a certain level of pharmacist who actually work in the stores. Right, and yeah. so that's the basis. And so that... I mean, although that, that cut down the numbers from a ish 8,000 to 7,000. So let's roll it back a little bit. So y you know you're going to have to kind of mount a campaign to, to say to everybody, de-recognise the BPA. Yeah. What, what does that campaign plan look like in practice? What, what were the kind of mechanisms that you guys use that you can talk about anyway? Yeah, yeah. That, that kind of you think were the key sort of markers that, that led to the success um well we wrote out and we so we sent materials into every branch right um so that hopefully reached a lot of people mm. we're quite active on our social media as a trade union and yeah, on our yeah, website yeah. and we can email our members and actually it was beyond our members because when the application went in we had to prove that of course 10 percent of the workforce mm. were yeah. in favor yes. yeah so the, the moment the application went in, we had a special campaign website go live, which included the option to pledge your support. Ah, nice one. Nice so on the day that the application went in, this website went live, and of the order of about 1,200 people pledged their support. But you know, several hundred of those weren't our members. They were right. just other but pharmacists that were But they're in, the, the, they're in the unit. They're in the unit, they're and the they unit. said, we pledged to de-recognise them, and actually, we pledged to recognise you as well. Uh, right, but also... In, also, you had the vast majority of your members in that twelve hundred. The vast majority of them were your members. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. 
they, most of them, most of them were. They weren't. That wasn't the, the vast majority of our members, but of those no, people no, that no, pledged. No, the vast majority of the pledges were your members. But even it? on the extended bargaining unit that the company and the, the BPA would have liked, it was still well over ten yeah. percent. You know, so we were able to prove that to the Central Arbitration Committee. That was no problem. And also, I suspect because this is where I get my head around and stuff to do with pledging, because I think it depends on when you pledge, how you pledge, and who pledges. So you've got a, a history of those people being members outside of, the, you know, a commitment to the union kind of anyway, yeah. haven't you? And also a long-standing relationship in this area. It's not like you just rocked up and said... Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, so of the 7,000 pharmacists concerned, 2,500 of them were our members. Um, 1,200, because all of the BPA's members are in boots, so 1,200 of them were BPA's members. So, of course... You know, around half were members of neither. But our profile is quite high in pharmacy yeah. because we are, as I said earlier, we are the champions of the individual pharmacist and their rights, so people know who we are. Yeah. So you've got the definition of bargaining unit, yeah. you've got you proved 10%, and then you go to ballot? Well, of course, there's a consultation process, and we spoke to the, the BPA, we spoke to the company, but that didn't get anywhere. We'd have liked it to, but, you know, yeah. we're not really surprised that it didn't. But would we, have loved to have been a fly on the wall. We, tried to. <laughs> <laughs> we are, of course, always positive and polite and, you know, keen always. to work with people. Genuinely, because, you know, we're not in it to massage our egos, we're in it to deliver for our members. So, you know, we're trying to forge a good working relationship with these people. And we've, I have to say, with the BPA we have constantly, for years, invited them to work with us for the benefit of pharmacists, and they yeah. have constantly declined that. Ultimately, you get to the ballot, yes. Yeah. So the bargaining unit's defined as 7,000 people. So we're sending stuff to stores. Of course, once the, the quip, the qualified independent person's there, okay. we are then sending literature via them. Mm. So that should get to everybody, although there was also a question, anecdotally perhaps, but a number of people come in saying, I've had pay slips from the company... Oh, but I, I haven't had my, my ballot paper. And when I phoned up the quip or the Central Arbitration Committee, the company had given them a different address to the address I live at. So, I mean, that's irrelevant now. We, we were concerned about that at one point because it felt like there was quite a high percentage of errors. The company suggested there isn't. But there's no need to look into it because of the result. But that was a concern. Yeah. Um, and lots of people very keen. At first, the deadline, because there's a 20-day period for the ballot, but they are, the CAC asked the company to provide um, the names and addresses of, of employees on day 10, which only lent 10 working days oh. for voting. And yet if you're on two weeks' holiday, you've missed yeah. it. Yeah. 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 So we asked for an extension, got declined, but then when this thing of the data quality came out, we asked again, and an extension was applied. So we did that and we sent stuff up, and of course, I think this is also the largest ballot that the Central Arbitration Committee have managed because it's 7,000 voters. So, of course, when we were sending out, we were, of course, sending out 7,000 bits of paper with 7,000 postages going on. Yeah. So, which is not yeah. a cheap exercise for us. Um, but we sent that literature out and then you ultimately get to the result of the, um, the ballot. And the test is, do you get a majority of the people that vote? So 50% plus one. And do you meet this magic threshold of... 40%, so 40% of those who could vote. Yes, so Not who do vote, but those that could possibly have yeah, voted. So you needed yeah. 3,000, no, hang on. 2,780 2, 2, 2, was our, on, a, was on seven grand, uh, yeah. 7,000 people, but actually the, the number was slightly less. But yeah, we needed That's about still... 2,800, which is more than we had in membership. Yeah. So we definitely, even if 100% of our members voted, we needed more. And, the, and you know, here's a test of strength of feeling, right? the percentage of those that could have voted 
to leave the European Union, the Brexit referendum, was of course 37%. The strength of feeling of drove people to remain in the European Union was 35%. So in terms of the strength of feeling, yeah. the test is you need a greater strength of feeling than what we've all seen around Brexit. <laughs> That's the percentage of people you need to actually get out and cast their <laughs> vote. <laughs> Which, you know, to many people, and we've, we've shared, I'm not a big quoter, but you know, my, my one Nelson Mandela quote is, it always seems impossible until it's done. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And I think many people thought that was an impossible task, which is perhaps why for 17 years nobody else had ever tested the legislation. <laughs> so so I think that the eventual turnout, I mean, it was a massive yes vote. It was about 42% turnout. So you, so you hit the, you hit the target. 41.04% turnout. We, we don't over, oversupply. Very efficient, I thought, of us. And uh, 87%. I mean, that's 87%. The, of, you know, the way most people look at ballot turnouts, you know, you know, what's the strength of feeling? Of those that voted, 87%. And, uh, do you know what? And I think this is the thing that when you look at returns for elections and pay ballots and things like that a, a return of 40 percent i think any union would be like overjoyed wouldn't they? <laughs> 40, i mean i mean yeah absolutely and 40 percent of the bargaining unit not even 40 yeah. percent of your membership and that's the thing isn't yeah. it like and and so i think there's not going to be an awful lot of lessons i think that that we can kind of think about and learn to help other unions but I think that kind of that depth of feeling is crucial to this isn't it like you took the temperature of your members you knew how and the workforce in general and you knew how they felt about stuff you knew what hit their buttons and what was important to them and that probably made a massive difference I right? think it did yeah I also think just the the way that we got into this situation it's not independent and of course after signing the agreement with the company the BPA became one of only three I think in the last 20 years to be refused a certificate of independence yeah. as well yeah. because of its relationship with the company and I think individuals in the company perhaps didn't realize that this entity which purported to speak for them mm. wasn't independent or couldn't prove its independence yeah. from the company that they'd signed this deal in secret because some people are new of course every day new people start working the place you kind of yeah. think oh is that the union you know oh, well, yeah. they, they must be all right i guess you think so you know i think we informed people about what had happened and what had gone on before and the fact that we we're independent and as of course uh, as we started off saying you know we are very much the, vo the voice of individual pharmacies Twenty-seven thousand of us so so do you have to do all this again to get recognition as opposed to get bpa <laughs> de-recognized well <laughs> this is the thing. So Where are you now? we've removed the uh, we've removed the blocking agreement, as we like to call it. And so, again, there was a court case, and this will be interesting. The CAC said, "Okay, we've now got to order that this agreement is terminated. So, when do you think it should be terminated?" So we said, "Okay, end of next week gives people a bit of time to get some admin going. You know, end of next week. What about that?" Um, the BPA said, well, we've got a meeting with the company booked in July, so can we keep it going till the end of July? The company said, we've got meetings booked with the BPA, and I think it was July, September and October. So we think the current agreement should remain until new agreements are in place, because we can't put in an application for, for, yeah. for um, yeah. recognition until this one's removed. 
But you know, that's not how court cases work. You know, you could get you could get done for kind of you know robbing a car and so you're sentenced to three years in prison or whatever. So, judge, I think what should happen is I should stay out of prison. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on, judge, I've got a couple more jobs I need yeah. to do. <laughs> how about I come in in about three months? You know, and I'm a big. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, of the law and justice and that sort of stuff. The deal is, the people have spoken, a vote, you know, yeah, a vote yeah. was cast. And of course, what happened was, the Central Arbitration Committee said, yeah, it's terminated immediately. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah. so they didn't even, like... Yeah. yeah. So as you'd expect, we submitted our recognition in that moment and then at one minute past midnight that night also. So we've absolutely got our recognition request in and we're now in the 10 working day period where the company can reply and hopefully listen to their employees, hopefully actually work with us for the betterment of the company. And all, you know, we're consistent. We want to work with the company in a way that the company can be a success, a financial and business success, in a way that treats employees fairly, in a way that listens to these healthcare professionals who are providing patient care in a retail setting, mm. but fairly, you know, fair reward, you know, respect at work, you know, job security, just like any other worker. That's what we're after. But, you know, it's up to the senior management of the company. Wow. Wow. Or, or is it if all the pharmacists get it? Well, it's up to the senior management of the company. If, the, if this process also doesn't result in a voluntary agreement between us and the company, then we go back to the, to the Central Arbitration Committee and like any other union, we ask for recognition. Now, of course, the normal process is... We then have to prove we've got 10% support. We've already done, done that. that. Done that. And yeah. the CAC need to think about whether they need a ballot in order to judge the strength of feeling. But we've just had one. So yeah. we'll see what happens. But our members have already, yeah, over a thousand pledged last summer. And our members are clear. If we need another ballot, we'll do they'll it. vote again. Mm. And we have, you know, strong uh, belief in our members. I mean, is it, I mean, just on papers, all these things, you know, it's an atomised workforce, isn't it? Because oh, people absolutely. Are, people are in shops either on their own or there's only a couple of them. They're doing all lots of different types of shifts. You've got urban, you've got rural, you've got, I mean, the... Private sector, private, public sector. Well, but this, with this Boots thing, it's, it's, you can't just say, oh, well, we've got a static workforce and they're in... It's, it's so much more complicated than that. This is, again, why I think this should be seen as a case study for unions. Because it's non, I suppose what we would consider non-traditional, but actually is now the kind of the way of work in all of these sorts of things. And it goes to show that if you can get the strength of feeling, if you know what people need and want, if you have that kind of respect and voice from the workforce, then you can overcome things like one person working in a shop. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely, can. You know, and, and you're right. And we, and we, you know, we as a union are absolutely keen to support any other unions going through the same thing. In fact, anyone who needs that uh, advice and wants some more um, looks behind the curtain of some of the more precise detail of some <laughs> of the stuff we did, we're more than happy to have a chat. Well, I mean, Paul, that's a it's a real success story, a real good news story. I mean, you know, on behalf of Union Story, congratulations on, on, on a great achievement. Yeah. Thank you for spending time with us. And no doubt we'll talk again to see how the story develops. Nice one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Thank Cheers. You. Cheers, guys. Well, listeners, hope you found that worthwhile. It's certainly, I mean, it's a great success story. I think it's not one yeah. we've heard, heard enough about.
So, as ever, we're very, very grateful and delighted to have your company on this, this podcast. Thank you for stopping by. <laughs> do, Hope you do, grabbed yourselves a cup of yeah, you, you pull up a chair, grab a cup of tea, put your feet up. Um, if you like what you've heard, if you don't like what you've heard, if you've got an idea about what you'd like to hear next or on another podcast, please do let us know. You can email us at info at unions21.org.uk. And if you did like what you heard today please rate us on whatever podcast provider you have the podcast platform of your choice the podcast platform of your choice uh share on social media tell your friends about it uh the more we can spread the word about what we're doing the wider a conversation about unions we can have and that's really important for making sure that the union voice is heard in the public space and every other space as as well so we'll be back in a couple of weeks uh with uh, what we were very much looking forward to which is a, a discussion with michelle sandstreet about the issues facing journalists uh, at the moment plus all the latest uh, news as it happens from the trade union world so until that time this is me simon sapper and me becky wright saying thanks for listening and, and goodbye bye. podcast was presented by Simon Sapper and Becky Wright. It was a makes you think production.